a podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Hey, oh, happy Thursday morning. We're just going to get started. I'm pumped about this one. You know, I've often made flip statements like day of the $30 ebook, that's done for. And today's guest, you know, she's always given me a great counterpoint to this and saying, you know, that's not how it's worked out for me. So I wanted to have Shana from EspressoEnglish.net to come on the program and share how with just her laptop and $1,500 in capital, she's built a successful info product business that allows her to live anywhere in the world. And she's chosen Brazil. So not a bad choice. We're going to talk about the lifestyle stuff at the end of the interview. We're going to talk about what her thoughts are on the future of location-independent entrepreneurship and what the lifestyle is like in Brazil. But we got to earn our stripes by talking about the business. So we're going to talk about how Shana drives hundreds of thousands of visitors to her site every month, what she does with those visitors to turn them into leads and customers, how she produces her info products, and how she values them. We'll also get into some business philosophy, mindset stuff, and book recommendations. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you have questions or feedback for Shana or myself about this interview, check out tropicalmba.com slash espresso English. My business is called Espresso English, and I sell info products, which are ebooks and courses that teach English as a second language to language learners around the world. And can you give us a scale of what the business is like and how long you've been doing it? Yeah, I've been doing it for three years, and at the moment, gets about a quarter of a million visitors per month. And as of November, it's my full-time job. Congratulations. And, and, you know, we've had some interesting debates on this blog about, you know, are info products still a viable business? You've been doing it for a thousand days now, more or less. What's your perspective on, you know, the future of info products, in particular selling courses and ebooks and things like that? Well, you know, a lot of people are saying, you know, ebooks are dead or info products are dead or podcasting is dead. But I think, I mean, do people still buy books? (laughs) Right. I mean, books are info products. It's a different form. It's not a digital product, but it is the transmission of information from one person to another. And I feel like as long as humanity has existed, that has been a need, right, to teach, to learn, to absorb knowledge. And so info products, digital info products, that's just the latest incarnation of that. So I think that info products are absolutely strong today and will just continue to be in the future. I'm a big fan of your work. I follow your posts. I've dug deep into your business and I got a bunch of different questions. Give us the context. Can you talk about, I'm always very curious with info products. What is your flagship course? How much does it cost? And what do people get for it? So I'm assuming that this flagship course sort of is the driver of revenue for you. So can you describe it? Actually, you've assumed Incorrectly. I have a complete program on my site, which is $195, but I don't consider that my flagship. I consider that the collection of the smaller products, which I sell as 
$15 ebooks, $30 courses, and $45 courses. And if someone were to purchase the entire thing, the whole bundle, they do get a discount on what would have been the total price, which would have been up around $300, and they pay $195. So I don't see it as a flagship course. I actually see it as the top level. Most people actually purchase the smaller offerings. How do you dice those up? Can you give us a description of like what those smaller courses are? Yeah, so these are courses I developed one by one over the past three years. Each one kind of laser focuses on one specific topic in the English language. So the first one I ever did was travel English, you know, how to get through the airport in English, how to make a hotel reservation, how to order in a restaurant, you know, somebody who might be traveling to an English speaking country in 30 days, because my course was 30 days long, they could learn kind of everything they needed to know to function in an English speaking country. And so I aim to make the courses kind of small, impactful, but really focusing on a particular area so that someone can take it and feel like they've really accomplished something in whatever that area was. So it's interesting. So the bundle product then doesn't drive the vast majority of your revenue. It's actually people who want to solve these really specific problems are willing to part with 40 bucks in order to learn how to travel. Or what are some of the other smaller products? The other ones are business English, pronunciation, speaking, listening, vocabulary, and right now I'm doing one on grammar, idiomatic expressions. I kind of divided it up based on the major areas of the language and also kind of based on what people were asking for and what they were expressing difficulty with. And so that's what kind of drove the selection of the course topics. So here's a mindset thing that I think I would have if I were doing info products. I might see a problem in the marketplace like, yeah, people don't understand English idioms. And then I might think about writing a blog post for it. I know basically what a blog post feels and looks like, but I'm not really sure what a $40 course looks and feels like. So can you describe precisely what people get for 40 bucks? Yeah. So all of my courses currently are priced by the length of the course. So if you're paying $30, you're getting 30 lessons. If it's $45, it's 45 lessons. And so it's kind of easy to understand from a numerical point of view. And the lessons inside the courses, they are just more well-developed and more complete than the blog post. So, for example, a blog post of mine might be 400, 500 words because mine are pretty short and sweet. But the lesson in the course might be 12 to 1,500 words with a quiz and with some exercises you can do. And it also includes video, audio, and text, all three forms, which I don't always have on the blog. So it's just kind of more complete. It's a more complete experience than just the blog post, which I call tips. I call the blog post tips, and I call what's in the courses lessons or courses. So I kind of make that language distinction too. How long would it take you to build a course? If I just gave you a bunch of coffee and said, grammar, go. What would it take? It takes exactly as long as the course is because what I do is I, (laughs) no, I'm serious. I pre-sell it. I give a discount and then I light a fire under my butt and I have to produce the lessons one every day until the course is done. And so I found that there's no better motivational hack for me than knowing I have customers who already paid for the product who are expecting tomorrow's lesson. So if I say it's a 30 day course, it's going to be finished in 30 days. That's wonderful. So you do some really interesting things on marketing. I want to ask you about that. But first, let me ask you about your autoresponder. When I opted into your list, you have a really nice sort of list bait, like an ebook and an MP3 download. But then right on the first email, you offer me two ebooks for $1. And I was kind of looking at that like, what? what's going on here? What is your strategy there? And also, what percentage of the people that get on your list are they like, yeah, I'll give you a dollar for those extra ebooks? 
You know, it's not a huge percentage because I do get a lot of opt-ins. There are a lot of people looking for free English stuff online, but it's about 5%. And the rationale behind that is to turn somebody from just a free subscriber and a consumer of free content into a customer as soon as possible with as little friction and as little risk for them as possible. I mean, it's a $1 purchase. I mean, literally, I've had hundreds of people buy this $1 book and I've never had anyone write to me and say, I want my money back. I didn't feel like I got enough value from the $1 book. I mean, everybody, I'm assuming that if people didn't like it, they probably thought, oh, well, it was only a dollar. But the point is that it's a baby step, right? It's a baby step towards a deeper relationship with me and my courses and my content. And so it's a few people who take me up on that, but I think it's valuable in moving them towards a bigger purchase later on down the road. I've noticed that you seem to have a pretty honed email marketing strategy. Where do you get your ideas? Are there like books that you go to or blogs that you visit regularly specifically on the email stuff? Or are you just like going into Ramit's site and just doing what he does? Or what's, (laughs) are there gurus out there that you admire in terms of their strategy? You know, not really. I think I've read from so many different sources that there's no one person that I really follow very closely. But I've kind of developed my own strategy. Part of it is the fact that since my courses are not super high priced, right? I mean, most of them are under $100, you know, so I'm not selling a high ticket item like a $500 seminar or a $2,000 course. I mean, you know, they're out there. People launch them and are very successful. Since my products are kind of mid to low priced, my autoresponder, my email strategy, I kind of follow the maxim of the sales are always present, but never pushy. So my courses are always open. I don't do the open, close cart, build up anticipation, close it down thing. (laughs) And, you know, I'm not knocking it because I know it works for some people and for some markets extremely, extremely well. But just with my philosophy, I feel like you know, I'm almost like an online English school. I'm always open. And if someone is at the point where they want to take my course in February, they can take it in February, they can take it in June. And so I always want to leave those open for people and be continually inviting people in to take them. Let's talk about marketing. But first, I want to give a little context because your site now generates a great income for you. You don't have a job. You're living in Brazil. You're getting a quarter million visitors and tons of opt-ins every day. Can you sort of bring us back to the beginning? Like, what were the first things that you were doing? And what was your mindset at the time? Were you just putting out blog posts and crossing your fingers? What was the original hustle? And you also mentioned something about founder fit, something I've been kicking around a little bit. You mentioned that info product business like yours might make more sense for people with certain kinds of personalities or certain kinds of interests or engines. Can you describe what makes you good at this? in your mind, and what were those first few baby steps? Yeah, absolutely. So before I was doing Espresso English, I was cobbling together a living from three different sources. I was teaching English locally here in Brazil. That was one. I was doing some online work for my former employer in the States, so I'd negotiated kind of a remote work agreement with them, and so I was getting paid hourly for that. And then I was also doing Portuguese to English translation work when it came up. So that would be a feast or famine type of gig. And, you know, those three things together, it was very unstable, seasonally variable, right? Because depending on if the English schools were open or closed. And the last straw that kind of pushed me into moving 
my business online was when there was a two or three week police strike here in Salvador. The police went on strike and you can imagine what happens in a city of almost 4 million people when the police go on strike, right? This isn't the safest city to begin with. And basically everything shut down, including the English schools. And my income took like a 70% hit during those months. And I thought this can't continue. I need to have an income source that is not dependent on the bus system, the police strikes, all this other stuff. So that was the push that pushed me into online entrepreneurship. All right. So you've got the online skill set. What was the first thing you did with Espresso English in order to get that traffic traction? And how long was it until you actually launched a course into your audience? I wasn't particularly smart about this. I really did publish blog posts and cross my fingers. And if I could go back and do it all over again, I would have probably done some other things like guest blogging, I didn't do any of that. Webinars didn't do any of those. Partnerships or trying to, you know, team up with other people in in the niche didn't do any of that. I literally just posted posts and I followed 2000 people on Twitter and then I waited. But I kept posting posts while I waited. And so in the first, you know, three months, traffic did come, but it was very slow in building. And I think I could have accelerated that if I had been a bit more assertive in promoting my content instead of just posting it on my own blog. And what kind of energy did you put into that? And what kind of topics? I mean, it obviously worked for you. So what kind of topics were you writing on? Well, you know, at the time I was still teaching at the English school. So what would happen is, you know, a student would ask me a question in class, you know, Shana, what's the difference between the word travel and the word trip? And I'd answer the question in class and then I'd go home and I'd write my answer in a blog post and post it. And so a lot of my early posts just came from issues that would come up in my private or group classes offline with the students. And then I'd take what I had taught them, that tip or whatever it was, and I'd put it online. What was the moment when you're like, I can make money out of these blog posts? Well, I had a very early fail. The second month in, I had a couple hundred subscribers and I said, I'm going to launch a pronunciation course. And I launched this course to these 200 or so subscribers. And I was very disappointed because only three people signed up and they paid $9 for it. I had discounted it all the way down to $9. And I remember just thinking, this is never going to work. You know, I've paid all this money for hosting and I got three students at $9 a piece and this isn't going anywhere. And I think a couple of people wrote to me and said, why isn't this free? And I was really kind of <laughs> shaken by it. You know, it didn't seem like it was going to get any traction. But when I look back now, I know that I did a number of things wrong in that initial launch, but it was another three or four months before I actually worked up the courage to try again and present another paid offer to my list. What do you see as your competitive advantage? Why did your site go from $9 course with a few short blog posts to this behemoth? And by the way, do you have Portuguese content? Is it something particular about you being located in Brazil that gave you a competitive advantage? Actually, it's not. You know, at the beginning, I considered whether to make my site Portuguese or Brazil focused or not. And I ended up deciding to write it only in English. And part of that was a strategy thing because I only wanted English learners who were at least intermediate level or pre-intermediate level because that was probably somebody who had invested some time and some money already in their English education and would be willing to continue as opposed to complete beginners, right? Absolute beginners who are just kind of starting out learning the language. But as for my competitive advantage, you know, this has taken me three years to figure out And it took another English teacher entrepreneur 
who had subscribed to my list, bought my products, and we were kind of masterminding together and exchanging some business ideas. I said, well, what do you see as my USP or, you know, unique competitive advantage? And he said, it's you. And I said, no, it's not. I'm nowhere on the site. I mean, I don't do video. I don't have my face all over the site. It's not named after me, right? I always, you know, tried to push the brand Espresso English as opposed to the person, Shana. But he said, you know, it's just, it's the way you teach. It's really clear and straightforward and you have a very pleasant voice to listen to. And I said, thank you. (laughs) It's that unique combination of all those kind of intangibles that sums up to make something unique. And he told me, you're so close to it that you don't see it. You know, it's so natural to you, right? You don't think it's anything special, but clearly it's resonating with your students and they're enjoying your lessons. They're sharing them. They're telling their fellow English students about them. And it's crazy. I never considered it, but I really think that's what it is. I never considered myself a personality driven business, but I think that's what gives me the competitive advantage. So this is very inspiring to me. I love this kind of business. I mean, I've tried to write a lot about the types of things that you've done, you know, just creating great content that solves problems, working your way up, charging for your premium content. What do you see as the next level? I mean, now you've kind of, you've blogged, you've marketed your way into this really nice financial position. What is the next level for a business like this in your mind? Or is there one? Well, I'm actually about to enter into kind of a new phase next year, which is where I'm going to go back and kind of take all of those products, which I produced in a rush, right? Because I had paying customers waiting for the product to come out. I'm going to take each one of them and make them way way better. So I've gotten some feedback, right, from my initial customers and students. I ask people for it. I say, you know, about 30 days after someone has purchased a course, they get asked for feedback. You know, what would you add to this? Is there anything that wasn't clear to you? I'm going to take all of that feedback and kind of create a a 2.0 version for every single one of my courses. With that, there will be a price increase. So it will go up a little bit, but it will also provide a lot more value. You use ClickBank, to sell your digital products. And a lot of people are using Gumroad and all these different things. Can you describe to me why you use ClickBanks and are you having any success with affiliates or other people marketing your products? I don't remember my original decision to use ClickBank. It might have been like the first info product payment processor that I just came across, but it's actually worked out very well for me. And one reason is that ClickBank, their checkout page, will change currency and change language based on the visitor's country. And that's super useful for a business that is, I mean, half of my customers are outside the United States. And so, you know, I guess it's a little more comfortable for them when they can see the price of their course in their own currency, you know, the checkout pages in their own language, there's no confusion. And so that one feature ended up working quite well for a business like mine that's focused on foreigners on English as a second language learners. So many marketing things here. First off, why don't you have a podcast? What's your thinking there? And what's your perspective on, I mean, it just seems like the it's a, it's a giant market. It seems so crowded, so saturated. Are all your leads as your primary channel, just people typing in like, how do I pronounce something? And they find their way to your site? I'm not podcasting yet because I think I've I've been focusing so much on creating these courses that I just haven't had time to fully expand my content marketing. So that means, you know, getting everything blogged, podcasted, and YouTubed. But next year, that's part of my plan is to expand into podcasting. As for the giants in the space, first of all, this really is a giant market. Several million English learners worldwide. I mean, there are people who go to other countries. They go to Australia. They go to Canada. 
Canada, they go to the U.S., and they pay several thousand dollars to do an intensive course inside the country and stay with the host family. I mean, I don't know if it's a billion-dollar market. It probably is. And when I started, I did look at the giants in the space, and I was pretty intimidated. I remember looking at one site that offered 24-7 live teachers. And I remember thinking, how does little old me with my laptop and headset microphone, how do I compete with 24-7 live English teachers? I mean, I can't do that. I'm just me. I don't have a team of videographers. I don't have anybody. What opened my eyes actually to another part of my competitive advantage is I had a student who had been a subscriber of this giant competitor of mine and he had canceled his subscription. And I asked him, I said, well, why'd you cancel? That's like the best in the industry, you know, the best online learning platform for English. And he said, information overload. They have 10,000 videos and I don't know where to click first. And I just got discouraged and left. And so I said, aha, I'm going to make my site really simple to follow step by step so that you don't get overwhelmed and you can see exactly, you know, how much progress you've made and where to go next, et cetera. And so even that contrast between the big site and the small but perhaps more clearer and more efficient learning site was also, I think, a little bit of an advantage for me. I was really surprised to hear Anton's method from Dropship Lifestyle, like what he provides in his e-courses. It's a lot of what you were saying, like just that simplicity. And that's really what people are paying for. They're not paying to drink from a fire hose, so to speak. And this also actually gets into the question of, you know, when I first started out, I was wondering, in fact, I think I sent to you a podcast episode question about this. How do I compete with all the free stuff on the internet? Because, you know, pretty much everything I teach, if you got Google Ninja skills, you can find it somewhere online or, you know, you can look it up in a dictionary. And what I eventually came to realize is that the bigger the pool of available information, the more important it actually becomes for you to have a teacher or someone to guide you through it. And so I think that despite the enormous volume of free stuff out there on Google, the people who are my customers, they get overwhelmed by that or they don't have time to deal with that. And they just want someone, they want a guide. They want someone to teach them what's most useful, what will get them the result they want. And if they resonate with my teaching style, then they choose me to be that person. And so I think that's a key thing to remember for info product marketers. I don't want to say more is not necessarily better because obviously you do want to provide enormous value, but I think it's almost the curation and the guiding of the learning process that's more important than the volume, so to speak. Shana, before we move on to some business philosophy and lifestyle questions, I'm curious if you could share with us maybe some tactical takeaways. Take your time to think about this, but I'm curious if there are things that you've done with your blogging and with your email marketing funnels and with your products that were maybe a little bit counterintuitive, like things that you switched around. I was like, whoa, I can't believe it took me that long just to do that. That made a big difference. Are there a few things that you could share that people could implement in their businesses? Okay. The first major one is the pre-selling of the courses. That was a huge light bulb moment because I actually got paid to create my own info products. And that first group of customers, you know, they're usually your biggest fans. They're the early adopters and they'll be willing to work with you and give you feedback. And so you don't have to have the whole info product prepared before you launch it as long as you communicate that to people up front, right? right? That's important to be clear in your messaging. But if you can do that, then it does become a joy to produce these things because you know you're doing it for people, you've already sold it. You know you're going to sell more of it. And so it's not you avoid this kind of situation that I see some info product entrepreneurs fall into, which is they're working on something, they're creating something, but it's kind of a big question mark as to 
if anyone's going to want it, if anyone's going to buy it, right? And when you pre-sell, you avoid that because even if you get a tiny group in the door, my first successful pre-sell had 18 students, you know, not a lot, like a big classroom full maybe. But you know what? It was enough to motivate me and get me to produce that info product and also get great feedback from them. Really curious, how many days did you tell them? Like, how did you frame it up to them? Did you say you were going to go make it if they bought it? Or did you say, like, oh, I'm waiting for it to arrive? Or what was the, the circumstances under which they're buying this? What sparked this is I realized that when people go to an English school, they swipe their credit card and pay for a whole semester of classes. And they haven't taken those classes yet. You know, they're going to take them over the coming weeks. And so I just told them, I'm going to give an online travel English course. I will publish one lesson a day for 30 days. And if you sign up, it's $30. And that was it. I just made it very clear. It's going to start August 1st and it will be 30 days. You'll receive one lesson a day. Very cool. One of the things that we've sort of related to each other in the past is like this good, honest grind mindset a little bit. I don't know how you describe it. Tell me your mindset about slow, consistent, steady input into your business. The only reason I've had success is because I've just kept doing it day after day. I've kept being in people's inboxes. I've kept posting. I haven't missed an e-newsletter in three years. Uh, I've been in people's inboxes twice a week. That stickiness factor is, well, for one, I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't have it. They don't have the patience to do it, to stick with it. If I had looked for traction or a big win within the first six months, I wouldn't have had one because it was a very slow, steady process. And I think that actually most businesses are like that. I think the ones that we hear which have these huge wins or sudden takeoff moments, I really do think they're the outliers. And for most of us, it's a constant process of experimentation, iteration, steps and missteps, small victories that you had been hoping would be big ones, you know, some fails along the way. And I really think that that's more typical, but a lot of people don't talk about that process because I think it's it's kind of boring and a little bit painful when you're in the middle of it. And you feel like you're maybe not making progress. I know I felt like that a lot of times. But then when you look back on, on the past year, the past three years, you see you actually have learned a lot and come a long way in your business. What books, blogs, or podcasts inspired you while you were doing the grind or inspired you to believe that your inputs were ultimately going to be worth it? Well, you told me I'm not supposed to say this, but it really was yours and Tim Conley's. Your two podcasts were what I would listen to on the bus when I was going back and forth to the English school and thinking, can this really work? I mean, can people really, you know, build a business, a profitable, successful business online? And I remember one guy, Tim Conley interviewed, who had built like a six-figure business in the model train niche. And I was thinking, <laughs> seriously? And I mean, you know, you guys, they're cat furniture. And I said, no, okay, if if those things are possible, you know, there are, there are big markets around these areas, clearly I can figure out how to make it work with English teaching, right? Well, I appreciate that. What you mentioned, you're a big reader. What sorts of books would you recommend that people read? One of them that I've really been into lately is The One Thing by Gary Keller. The title almost gives it away because it's all about focusing on one thing. But I think it's super helpful when you're in that stage of kind of trying a zillion different things and determining when to stick with something and when to abandon it because it's not working. And so it's given me kind of some food for thought as to what's 
truly having an impact in my business and what I should double down on versus what I should scrap or save for later. So let me interrupt. I'm so fascinated by, you know, your content strategy and also like the potential for how you're going to syndicate it next year. Like you were mentioning, putting it out to YouTube and iTunes and all this. That's like, I got excited when you said that. Do you feel like that is your one thing is, is waking up every morning and creating content for your audience? That is. And, you know, as I look back, actually, on my past experiences, ever since high school, I have been teaching or tutoring in some capacity. I mean, in high school, it was like I was doing it for math. And then in college, I was tutoring chemistry and I was also tutoring people in writing. Kind of throughout the years, I've been teaching in some capacity. And the challenge of taking some complicated grammar thing or some difficult aspect of the English language and being able to present it in a way that's just crystal clear and helps my students just get it. That's something I can sink my teeth into. And, you know, every time I produce a good lesson, I mean, it might be a struggle when I'm doing it, but it gives me such a feeling of satisfaction. And so I think that that's my strong point. That's a skill that I've developed over the years. I'm still developing it, but that is kind of where I shine and also where I most enjoy investing my energy. So another one is not actually a business book. It's more of a mindset book and it's called Learned Optimism by Martin Seligman. Have you read that one? I haven't, no. I don't even think I've heard of it. Why should we read this book? You know, when you're starting out, when you're trying to grow your business, you know, the whole confidence, insecurity thing, it's a struggle, right? And you're not sure whether to be optimistic, pessimistic, You're trying to avoid being too optimistic, but of course, if you're too pessimistic, you're not going to move forward. And learned optimism kind of teaches you a framework for training yourself to be more optimistic, not in a way that's like just think happy thoughts, but it has a lot to do with self-talk, with how you deal with failure, whether you consider it as permanent and binding or what kind of see it as temporary and not as reflecting on your own character. And I found that, I mean, you know, in the first few years of business, you're going to make a ton of missteps, right? You're going to waste money. You're going to waste time. You're going to do stuff that you thought was going to work. And then it actually ends up losing you ground. And I think that learning how to deal with that in a healthy way is really important. Because another thing that kind of held me back in the first few years of business is running my own business was such an important dream for me that I was afraid to invest 100% of my effort in it because I was scared. What if I give it my all and it doesn't work? Hmm. Did you ever face that? That's interesting. I don't know. I don't know if I'd be willing to admit it about myself. I think I was in a desperate financial position, so I kind of needed to make it work. I might not felt like I had that luxury of mindset at that time. Right. So you were looking, you were staring off the edge of a cliff, right? And so you had to (laughs) run in the opposite direction as fast as possible. Maybe, I mean, my journey was so different because I had three jobs and I gradually let go of each one of them. So it was a really slow transition, right? The third book is Ready, Fire, Aim by Michael Masterson. Uh And I love the title because that so describes pretty much the whole way I've conducted my business with launching the courses before they're created. And just, I try stuff. I don't wait for A-B testing results. I just kind of go with my gut and then see how my gut feels about the results. And I feel like when you're just starting out, there's not a lot of time to kind of be really slow and deliberate and strategic. I mean, you've got to do as much as possible to get to the point where maybe you can take things a little bit slower. And so it's higher level than where I am right now. I mean, he talks about taking a business from zero to 100 million, which is obviously, you know, way above my level. But a lot of the concepts are things that I can take and bring back down to where I am now and think about how to implement them. Very cool. So I think that we're good on the coffee section. If anybody has any questions for Shana, we're generally in the comments talking at tropicalmba.com slash espresso English. 
But Shane, if you still have energy, I'd love to transition to the coconut portion of the interview and have some fun. I'm really curious about your view about, I guess, digital nomadism in general and when you sort of got switched on to it and what motivated you. It seemed like, you know, when you were saying, you, you know, you were listening to this show and stuff, like you really wanted to be a digital nomad. Like what was the inspiration for you? Well, what was interesting is I was already outside the country. So I was into Brazil before I was into online entrepreneurship. And that's because I do a Afro-Brazilian martial art called capoeira. And so from the States, I would spend six months down here training this martial art and just learning, soaking up the language, the culture and everything. And then I would go back to the States and I'd spend another six months there because of visa restrictions. And then I'd come back here for another six months. So I was kind of in that situation before I discovered digital nomadism. It was your desire to be outside of the country that pushed you to learn about online business? Well, not quite. I love travel. You know, I love Brazil. And on what was supposed to be my last trip to Brazil before I had planned to go back to the States, settle down and live a respectable life. Um, <laughs> Which hopefully you'll never do. Well, <laughs> yeah, exactly. The respectable part, I'm not. I mean. That really was my plan, and then it was all upended because I met my future husband, and we got married, and I stayed here. So that you know completely threw that plan out the window. And so the next challenge I was faced with was, okay, now I'm here in Brazil for the semi-long term. Now how do I earn money? And that was when I started teaching English offline and eventually got into teaching English online. Can you describe for me what Salvador's like and why you're attracted to that place in particular? You know, I've never been to Brazil. And so what is it that's unique about that place that draws people in? Well, Salvador itself is pretty unique even within Brazil because it's kind of the center of Afro-Brazilian culture. So in the dance, in the music, in the cuisine here, uh, is all very heavily influenced by the African roots of Afro-Brazilians. I think 90% of the population here is of African descent. Salvador is also known as the city of joy, and that's for two reasons. One is because the people are really warm, really friendly, and really upbeat, and also because there are constant constant parties throughout the entire year. <laughs> this is a party town. Like Brazil's famous for carnival, right? In Rio, you know, the carnival you see on the TV with like the samba dancers that lasts like three or four days. In Salvador, it lasts eight days and they have pre-carnival parties and post-carnival parties. So like it's a big, big party town here. Very cool. Immediately makes me think, how do you stay motivated to work every day? Like, so you mentioned that you felt like you did a pretty good job of not sitting in front of the computer until your eyes get red every single day. Maybe you could walk us through like what your lifestyle looks like. Like what does an average day for you look like? I usually try to do my creative work in the morning. So that means creating lessons, basically. Anything that has to do with composing a new lesson or just putting together the text for it. I feel like I only have about three or four hours of genuine creative brain power in any given day. And so I try to do that in the morning. In the middle of the day, I will either train or have lunch. In Brazil, lunch is the biggest meal of the day. So, you know, kind of break in the middle of the day for lunch, take a nap. And then in the afternoon and evening, I'm back at it, usually doing less brain power intensive stuff like responding to emails, tweaking my autoresponder, you know, all those little things that don't require quite as much focus and concentration. So I've kind of two main blocks of work in the morning and in the evening. I do the same. I'm curious, like, how do you 
balance that kind of like I could work all the time kind of thing? Is it easy for you? Is it like the training schedule kind of keeps you balanced? Or do sometimes you find yourself just laying in bed at night thinking, man, if I just did a few more things, I could make a little bit extra money and I wouldn't be worried about X and Y and Z? Or do you feel like it's a, it's a very balanced, methodical mindset for you? I feel like my energy just kind of naturally limits my working time. You know, after a couple of hours really digging into a lesson, I just, I get tired of sitting and I just have to get up and do something, you know, run to the store, you know, something besides sit at the computer. I feel like it's just a natural rhythm I'll fall into. I can't physically just sit here and stare for, you know, eight hours or or 10 hours or whatever. For a lot of internet workers, they struggle with like trusting that. And I've had this certainly where, you know, I'm too tired to really work, but I'm still thinking about it. And it's kind of like wasted thought. I'm not ready fire aiming. I'm just, I'm trying to, I'm like doing aimless aiming. <laughs> I'm not firing. I'll have to confess, I do have a hard time turning my business brain off. I do lay in bed at night, not stressing about, oh, I should be doing more, but kind of planning, plotting, you know, thinking about what's next, kind of always looking forward. But for me, that's actually fun thought, as long as it doesn't kind of tip towards the entrepreneurial guilt of like, I should be doing more, I should have been working more, which it is very easy to kind of fall into. There's this reputation a little bit in the digital nomad community that there's a lot more like business focus in Asia, like there's more like interesting business things. And and all the digital nomads that end up in Brazil, they're all in the English niche. Is this something that you've experienced? And can you describe, you know, what type of nomad or expat scene is currently you see on the ground in Brazil? There's not much of one, honestly. Here in Salvador, the main expat community is spouses of Brazilians or employees of like multinationals, like we have a big Ford plant outside the city and there's a bunch of Americans who work there. But I mean, there's one co-working space and it's not very active. I think it's, you know, some people are kind of starting to turn that around, mainly in the southern cities in in Rio and in Sao Paulo. It's still underdeveloped. I mean, it's not like a hub for digital nomads like Asia is. And I think that's actually a shame because Brazil is a great country to be in in terms of lifestyle. And it's maybe not as cheap as Southeast Asia, but it's also not terribly expensive. So it is a good place to be. One final question I'll ask you is we both hang out in D.C. quite a bit and you're a mod in there. And I'm curious... There's been a lot of talk about what the future of digital nomadism looks like. I'm curious if you have any, I guess, perspectives on that. Like, where do you think this movement's going? Still relatively new. I'm assuming that a lot of people in Salvador think you're a weirdo. Do they they have trouble figuring out what you're doing? What do you think is the future of this digital nomad thing? I think in 10 years, I mean, there'll be a lot more role models, right, to look up to. You know, there'll be a lot more people who have made it, who new entrepreneurs can kind of look to and say, okay, you know, that person made it, you know, I can, I can follow the same path. And, you know, hopefully it will also be more accepted within society in general. I mean, I've never had the problem of opposition or resistance from my family, but I know a lot of people face it. And so what I'd like to see is that it becomes kind of an accepted lifestyle and a supported one, right, by other people in general. I so wish I could have listened to this interview in 2007. So in some ways, it's a message in a bottle back to my former self. Thanks for taking so much time out to share your story with us. Us, Shana. We'll see you guys in the comments at tropicalmba.com slash espresso English. Thanks again, Shana. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning. 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.